I don't know if you've uh, been in one of these moments in your life. <clears throat> I call them a, a God, where are you moment. God, where are you moment. Twelve years old. Parents come into your room late one night to tell you they're having marital problems. And you feel like the rug has been completely yanked out from underneath of you. I remember one time I was sitting by the edge of a creek in Wisconsin. A very dysfunctional relationship in my life was coming to, the, to an end after years of frustration and confusion and heartache. I'm looking up at this dark sky. Oh, God, where are you? Feeling a million miles away. I mean, we come in here all over the map. People struggling with fertility. Maybe coming in, you got a wayward child in your life, a distant spouse, experiencing financial crisis, crisis at work. Maybe you're experiencing the dying of a loved one, doubts and frustrations at God. And when, when in those moments, man, we don't see, man, if, if God is truly in control, if, if he's sovereign, if he's overseeing this thing, how in the world is he using this thing in my life for good? How can this be a part of the plan? When hope is bleak, and it feels like it may be altogether lost. And that's where we find Israel in our story here in Romans chapters 9 through 11 experiencing a God, where are you moment. And, and, and as they have many times in their nation's history, they're going, God, have you broken your promise? Have you set us aside forever? And we have to, we must this morning find out, is God faithful to them? Because today we have the same questions and we need the same answers about this God. Now, kind of zooming back out for a second and reminding ourselves of kind of where God has me, the big picture here. Where's God taking Israel in this timeline? And back in chapter 9, we talked about his sovereignty, that in God's sovereignty, he chose Israel as a nation to, to be his own people, and, and through them, he was going to save the world. He was going to send this Messiah to rescue us from our sins. And then we saw in, uh, as, as Jesus came, he came as the Messiah. But then we see in chapter 10 that, that Israel rejects that king. They reject that Messiah. In fact, they, they kill the very one that came to save them. And we saw man's side of things, their responsibility for rejecting Jesus. And so God sets aside Israel. The promises he had made to them have yet to this day, 2018, have not been fulfilled. And right now in the church age, he's primarily working through individuals no longer at this period through the nation of Israel. But he's not done with them yet. And what we're going to see today in chapter 11, Jesus is coming back someday. And when he comes back, we are going to see him receive Israel as a nation once again. He will fulfill every promise. He is faithful to do what he said he's going to do with Israel and in our lives today. In fact, in Deuteronomy 32, I love it. He calls Israel the apple of his eye. Front and center, he has never lost vision of her as a people. And in fact, we're going to see today that God uses their very rejection of Jesus as the central part of his plan to save not only Israel, but the entire world. It's all 
part of his plan. And my, my prayer for us this morning as we hear from this word and we might find ourselves in those God, where are you moments that we would come to discover that he is near, he is not far. He is faithful, he is not faithless, and we can trust him. The theme of chapter 11 is this questioning of Israel. Paul asks it right out of the gates. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has he rejected his people? And one of Paul's catchphrases, he says here, by no means, or your translation might say, God forbid. No, no, decidedly no. We're going to see this morning three things about this rejection. He rejected them, but not all of them. He rejected them, but not forever. And then finally, he rejected them, but then one day he will restore the people of Israel. So first of all, he rejected them, but not all of them. We're going to see God always preserves a remnant. Romans 11, uh, verse 1, he says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And he's going to give two examples to prove his point. Number one, he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He starts with himself. He says, I can tell you God has not been faithless to all of Israel because the one who's writing this book, he looks at his pedigree, he says, I'm of the nation of Israel and God by his grace has saved me. And he's chosen me to take this good news of Jesus to the Gentile world. Paul himself is an example that God is not done with all of Israel. And he goes to a second example. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against, appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. Elijah found himself in one of these God where are you moments where he felt like there was no one else in his country that trusted God anymore and that God had completely abandoned his people and look at what God's response is to Elijah what's his reply to him I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal when the rest of the country had committed spiritual adultery against God He says, there's a remnant. There's 7,000 people. Now, in a nation of millions, that's not very many. And it looked pretty bleak. But I love what Leon Morris said about this. He said, it was not the number as much as the permanence of God's plan for Israel that mattered in the time of Elijah. He put his trust in God's grace, not in numbers. It wasn't because of how many people trusted God. It's because Elijah trusted. If God said it, it will come to pass. You remember what happened back in in the day of Noah, when when you look around and you go, this whole world is being destroyed by a flood, and God preserves eight, eight individuals. That's not a great percentage of people in the world trusting God. And when hope looked completely bleak, God preserves, albeit a small remnant, but a remnant nonetheless, because God, and here's why, because God was not about to back out of his promise. Remember what he said back to Adam and Eve in the garden? There's this snake crusher coming who's going to defeat Satan and sin and death and deliver the world from their sins. And and so God here, he faithfully keeps a remnant, Noah's family, through the flood. And in Elijah's day, he faithfully preserves a remnant that will not bow the knee to any other God. He's faithful. He's faithful to his promises. He always keeps a remnant. And then B, God's remnant is chosen by grace, not by works. He says at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, we keep using this word. What does that word remnant mean? Well, remnant means a small remaining quantity of of something. So if you see a guy with a big bushy beard eating Cheetos, you know, like Harlan. He's probably got the biggest beard in here right now. Harlan's snacking on some Cheetos. 
His kids are like, did you bring Cheetos? Is that, is that true? And he gets a little bit of that Cheeto dust in his beard, right? That's a remnant. He's got a remnant to save for, for later, right? Just like this guy. He's got a remnant of Cheetos in his beard. Actually, that's quite a bit more than a remnant. Um, this remnant is, is saved. And how is this remnant saved? God says, you may be reduced to Cheeto dust in my beard. But your hands, <laughs> a beautiful analogy, isn't it? But you are hanging on, right? You're clinging, right? And, and he says the way that this remnant remains is by grace. When, when it says Noah, back in Genesis, it says Noah found favor with God. That word favor is the first time the word grace is used in the Bible. See, how did Noah find favor with God? Well, verse 6, if it's by grace, it's, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This isn't God scanning the world for a few good men or women who, who have passed the test. Noah was, was no less a sinner than anyone else in the world at that time. He's not looking around and finding somebody and going, whoa, check out the sparky jewels on that guy's vest. You see, he comes to church every single week. I have to save him. I have to preserve him. That's no one. No one. Noah nor Elijah were any better than anyone else around them, but they came believing God. And his sovereign method for salvation has always been faith in him coming by grace. But then we turn to the rest. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The rest of the nation came on their own merit by works, not by faith. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now, we go back to chapter 9. We talked about Pharaoh's hardened heart. And we saw that God allowed Pharaoh's hardened heart to pursue its natural inclination. And we're clicking on a hyperlink that takes us back to Romans chapter 1. What did he say God did with most of the world? He gave them over to their sinful desires. He let them have what it was they really wanted. And so they continue to harden their heart. And the word hardened here that he uses in verse 7, it means to cover with a thick skin or, or callous. So like a guitar player, like Robbie's up here shredding, right? He's got on the tips of his fingers over time. At first, when you start learning the guitar, it really hurts your fingers because the, the, the strings are pressing in. But over time, you develop this callus. And any, any guitar player has these calluses on the tips of their fingers, and they can no longer feel the guitar string because their skin has become hardened. Now, that's a good thing for a guitar player. It's not a good thing for our hearts. See, light rejected, light rejected produces a hardness of heart. Light rejected produces a hardness of heart. In other words, if we continue to reject the light, what God is revealing to us about himself, what he is giving to us freely by his grace, and we continue to reject that, then eventually over time, our hearts become calloused, and it will become more and more difficult to soften our hearts and open them to receive what God's trying to Get a, give us. You see, life is a long obedience in the same direction. So what habits are you forming in your life right now? Are you opening your word to God's heart to listen, to, to, to obey, to, to do what he, he's asking you to do, to, to believe what he's telling you? Or are you, are you hardening your heart off to him, to, to what his word says to you, what his will is for you and doing your own thing? See, God's going to give you what you want. God always gives us what we want. And we can either go our way and pursue our thing or his way and pursue his thing. And I think we know where each one takes us. The majority of Israel hardened their hearts toward God, but he faithfully kept a remnant by his grace. 
because he will never renege on his promises. They were rejected, but not all of them. He kept a remnant. Number two, they were rejected, but not forever. They rejected, but not forever. We're going to see, and this is so incredible, how this is all part of God's good plan. Even the rejection of God, of Jesus, was used as part of his plan. Verse 11, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. He says they stumbled, they didn't fall. There's a difference between stumbling and falling. If I'm walking across the stage and I trip, I stumble on Robbie's um, uh, guitar wire. Is that the right term, right? These youth guides, you can't trust them. They leave stuff everywhere and you trip it over. If I stumble over it, that is very different than actually falling, Right? If these hips fall down, they're not getting back up, right? There's a difference between a stumble and a fall. He says they've stumbled. And what was their stumble? Their failure to accept Jesus as God, as as their Messiah, as their Savior. But it was not a complete fall. In other words, it was not a total rejection of the people of Israel. God is not ending his promises to them. In fact, Paul wants to show how it was all part of the plan. Check this out. Next part of verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Through their trespass, their sin. What was their sin? Rejecting Jesus. He says, through their sin, salvation has actually come to the Gentiles. What's he mean by that? Well, what happened when they rejected Jesus? They killed him, right? They hung him on a cross. Now, did that murder of Jesus, did that squash God's plan and promise? No, it was actually the very opposite. That what did his death bring? It brought salvation for everybody. Their very rejection of Jesus was the central part of God's plan to bring salvation to the world. We rewind all the way back to the original promise to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. In you, he's talking to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this was the means through which he did it. That Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations by the way they acted, by the way that they lived according to his covenant. They failed to do that. But in their very rejection of the one who came to save them, God used that rejection, that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to save the world. This is incredible. And this takes me back to the story of Joseph in in Genesis. You remember, I think Joseph is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. And Joseph's brothers, very jealous of, of their little spoiled little brother who he's the one that gets the awesome coat. None of us do. So let's kill him, right? Bit of an overreaction. They, they, they want to kill him, but they compromise and say, let's just throw him into a pit and sell him for slavery, right? And so they do, and he gets taken away an effective death. But what his own, right? His own family, when they reject him, they sell him into slavery. What happens? God uses that to raise Joseph up into power in Egypt, blesses a non-Jewish country, and they're in a time of famine. He saves them. And then this famine, it spreads to, to Jacob's family, his own brothers, come to Egypt to receive salvation from their death. And who's the one there that gives them this life? The very one they had tried to kill, God uses to bless them. And what does Joseph say to them when they come to him? Man, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And what did he do? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. When you rejected me, God used that rejection to bring life to many. And this is the same exact thing that happened with our Savior. Acts 2 tells us this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This wasn't a monkey wrench. I didn't see it coming. I didn't think they were going to reject him and kill him. 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What you meant for evil, God used for the salvation of all of mankind. Acts chapter 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God knew this was coming. And the very rejection of Jesus God sovereignly used to bless the Gentiles and ultimately to bless the very people that rejected him. What a good, powerful God we serve. But he's not done with Israel. Finish verse 11. He says this, this salvation that's going to come to the Gentiles, it, it, it's done to, to make Israel jealous. In other words, as they see God blessing the Gentile nations with Jesus, that they might be wooed back and turn to the very Savior that they had rejected and receive the same blessing that's being offered to the Gentile nations. You're going to see that we're, he's not done with Israel. And we'll get to that in point three. But first, we gotta, Paul's going to give a warning to the bacon eaters, right? That's us, you and I, the non-kosher-eating Gentiles, right? The dirty Gentiles. Uh, amen. Praise Jesus for bacon. What we see here is he turns and he's going to shift. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Remember, non-Jews, that's all that Gentile means. So I'm speaking to you Gentiles, do not be arrogant toward the branches, which is a reference toward Israel. He goes, don't get cocky, Gentiles. God has shifted his focus between the time when Jesus went back up to heaven, right, his ascension, until he comes back again. This is a period called the time of the Gentiles or the church age. And God has shifted his focus primarily working through Gentiles. But what he tells us is to not get arrogant and to not turn against the Jew, warning us against anti-Semitism. And we see that in the world out through human history, this kind of hatred of the Jews. He says, that is not what you're called to. And, and, and then he gives us this analogy, and it gets kind of confusing, but I'm going to break this down for you, so as, as well as I can, as I understand it. The olive tree, he's going to, if you look in chapter 11, he uses this, this olive tree, and the olive tree represents a, the place of favor in God's plan. Not necessarily a one-to-one with salvation, but this is, this is being a part of God's plan, the place of favor in God's plan. And then he says, Abraham, at the root of this plan, is Abraham. That's where he started things, was Abraham through you, I'm going to bless all nations. The Messiah is coming through Abraham's line. So he's at the root of this thing. And at first, there's these natural branches, the, the Jewish people, right? The nation of Israel. They are the natural physical descendants of, of, of Abraham. And that's where he's going to start. But they are, he says here, this branch, the Jewish people are broken off from this place of favor because of their unbelief. Because they rejected Jesus, they are, they are broken off from this place of, of favor, And now, there's this new grafting in of these wild, crazy branches, that's us, the wild branches of the Gentiles. And he says, we've been grafted in, and now, right now, today, in the church age, God is primarily working through individuals from Gentile nations, not the nation of Israel any longer, or for now. But he says, don't get cocky. Don't get proud. Because if the unbelieving Jews were removed because of their unbelief, don't you realize the same thing? will happen to you Gentiles if you don't place your faith in Jesus? You come humbly by grace, not arrogantly like you deserve this thing. And, and he says this in verse 24, you Gentiles, by nature, were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So if God was willing to do something contrary to na- nature, if he was willing to graft in this wild branch, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches, Israel, back into the tree where they belong. What he's saying here is, I'm not done with Israel. 
I'm not done with my plan for them. One day, I'm going to bring them back into this, this plan that I have for the world. Rejected, but not forever. Third point. They're rejected, but they're welcome back. We'll see this grafting back in here. And if you have time this weekend, I encourage you to read these three chapters in Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. It's this beautiful look, this prophecy toward the ending for Israel. How Jesus will come back and he will rule and reign in the the place of of Israel. We don't have time to look at it right now, but we ask two questions about this. If if this plan's going to be brought to fruition, uh, when is it going to happen and how is it going to happen? First, the when. First, the when. He says in verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What in the world is Paul trying to communicate there? Well, what he's saying, he's echoing the words of Jesus. Jesus said this back in Luke. There's this time of the Gentiles that will be fulfilled. So today, in this age right now that we're living in, God is, is preparing a bride for himself called the church. And he's calling out individuals from every tongue, tribe, and nation, including those of us in this room today that are believers. And when, he says, when the body of Christ is complete, which none of us know when that is or, or how many or what, what that looks like, but when the body of Christ is complete, he says Jesus is going to come back. He's going to return again as the king, as the Messiah. And at that point, this time of the Gentiles will be complete and at that moment, Israel as a nation will be saved, is, is, the, is the word here. He says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, now, what does that mean? Does that mean when Jesus comes back, every person who's ever been a Jew of all time is going to get to be in his presence as, as believers? That's not what he's saying here. And F.F. F. Bruce kind of helps shed some light on this. He says, all Israel is a recurring expression in Jewish literature where it need not mean every Jew without a single exception, but Israel as a whole. So what he says is when Jesus comes back, the, the Jewish people as a whole, not necessarily every individual, but by and large this nation will be saved. Now, now that's the when. So when, when Jesus comes back, this is going to happen. But, but how does this happen? How does this happen? Verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer, that's Jesus, will come from Zion, which is another word for for Jerusalem, the mountain there. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, not just the person, but he's talking about Israel. And this will be my covenant, his promise with them, when I take away their sins. And how does he take away their sins? Salvation has always come through one means, that deliverer, faith in the Messiah. He says, at that time when Jesus comes back, Israel as a nation, as a whole, will repent of their sins and open, open those calloused hearts back to Jesus and receive him as their Messiah, place their faith in his finished work on their behalf. And you read the end of Revelation, and it's so cool the way this story culminates in Revelation 20 and 21. You see every promise God made to Israel come true. When Jesus comes back, he rules and reigns as the king and that's the promise that he, that, that he had been made, that from the line of David, which Jesus is from, a king would come and rule forever. Jesus rules forever. And where does he rule? From Jerusalem. That's where the city is. And they were promised a king reigning in the land of Canaan forever and ever. Every single one of God's promises to the people of Israel will come true. Now, why in the world? How do we bring this around to us today, Justin? Three, three concluding things that I want us to think about. Number one, when God promises, we need to take it to the bank. When God makes us a promise, just like God promised Israel to reserve this this remnant of Cheeto dust and one day restore them, 
They could bank on that no matter how few people were left believing in him. He says, hang on, I'm not going to fail you. And in the same way, we can be encouraged, given courage today to know when God makes us a promise, we can bank on it. But we have to know what God has and hasn't promised us. Because if we come in thinking that God's promised us health, wealth, and happiness, we're going to be sorely disappointed. And we come to him and go, God, why haven't you doubled my bank account yet? Why haven't you fixed all of my problems? Why haven't you healed all of my owies? He's going, I never promised that. I didn't say that everything in your life would turn out rosy in this world, in this time. But what did he promise us? So many things. I love when I'm reading through scripture to look for the words, I will. These are promise words. This is what I'm going to do, what I promise to you. He said, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We don't have to worry as a church. This isn't on me to figure out how to grow a church and what to do and how to figure it all out. He's given us a place in this, but ultimately my hope for our church is this promise that he's going to build his church and hell and nothing can stop him from doing what he said he's going to do. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So right now today, if you feel like God is a million miles away, we have to cling to this promise that he has said, I haven't left you and I never will. I'll never abandon you. He said, I I will supply all your needs. Not your wants, right? I'm not a vending machine for you, but everything you need, your daily manna, I will give you everything you need to do what I've asked you to do for life and godliness. God is able, and I love this one, God is able to keep you from falling and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. We might stumble, but he says, I will keep you, believer, from falling. And he says, he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion. What is he doing? He's making us more and more like Jesus. He says, if I finished that work, in, if I started that work in you, I will finish it. And finally, and I, I love this one from John 14, Jesus is talking to his, his disciples just not very long before he dies. He says, I will come again. I will come back. I will take you to myself. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you and you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. This is the hope that we have. And we can bank on it as surely as Israel could bank on it. Number two, when God promises, don't get cocky. When God promises, don't get cocky. Remember he says here, Gentile branches, don't get, don't get, too, don't get too big for your britches, right? Excuse me, Israel. It's the Gentile branches turn now. Thank you very much. Hey, God. You're welcome, right? And we start, we start thinking that we're something, right? Now look at, look, at, look, at, look at what God's doing with us. But he says this, he goes, man, Do not become proud, but fear. And these are some hard words to hear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, who have not placed their faith in Jesus. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. He says, those who lean into Jesus... They will experience the kindness of God. But those who do not, there's wrath, there's severity. John Piper gave an illustration once of his seven-year-old son and a German shepherd. This big old German shepherd, a friend of theirs had a, they were over at their house and um, the boy found when he came up to the German shepherd, if he approached him and kind of snuggled up next to the shepherd and kind of petted him, the German shepherd loved the little boy and he'd lick his face and he'd be all nice. 
But then Piper had forgotten something in the car, and he asked the boy to go run and get it. And so the little boy, his, his boy starts running toward the car, and this German shepherd gets all low, starts to growl, and starts to run after the boy. The boy starts freaking out. Piper says, oh, 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 you better walk. The dog doesn't like it when people run away from him. See, when he pressed into the dog, he found kindness. When he tried to run from him, that's a different story. May a healthy fear of our holy, good God drive us toward his kindness and not to run from him. He is good, but he's not safe, in the words of of C.S. Lewis in Fazlan. Finally, number three, when God promises... Remember, a day is like a thousand years. We need to have the patience and the perspective that God has. I love Second Peter. He says, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. He has a perspective outside of time that you and I don't have, and this is how he applies it. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. Some go, God, where are you? You said you're coming back for us. We haven't seen you. What's going on? He says, no, he's being patient for your sake. Why hasn't he come back yet? He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. So why is, why is God waiting? What gives? He wants more people to be grafted into that tree. He wants more people to turn from their sins and embrace Jesus as their Savior. And so there are times in our lives where we're going, God, you promised these things for me, but you haven't given them to me on my timetable, when and how I said I wanted them. That's not his failure to us. Think about Abraham. And God promised Abraham a son. Now for us, we read the, the, the next chapter in Genesis, like, oh, he promised him a son, and then there's the son. But you realize for Abraham, it was 25 years. That's a quarter of a century for God to bring that promise to fruition. Now I did a little bit of math. Let's just look at God's perspective on that. If a day is like a thousand years to God, and I know he's just using that as an illustration, but for God, 25 years, that would be 36 minutes. So for God, that's nothing. That's an episode of Mr. Rogers, right? And here comes the the son. And he gives him to us. So man, for us, like when we feel like we are waiting on the Lord and we go, I do not see the light at the end of the tunnel. God's given me this promise in his word, but I have not seen it come to fruition. Don't forget to see things from God's perspective. Day is like a thousand years. And if he's promised it to us, he will, he will give it to us. So when you find yourself in these God, where are you moments in your life? Just like Israel, when when the remnant looked bleak, when it looked like there was hardly anybody there, when it looked like maybe all hope was lost, they could bank on the promises. And over the years, we've seen God be faithful to Israel. 1948. This has never happened before, you guys. Israel's being gathered back as a nation when they had been scattered for hundreds of years. We're seeing God be faithful to this promise. And we can know in our lives, no matter how bleak it gets, the same God that was faithful to Israel, using their very rejection of him to bring Jesus into our lives, he will, he will be faithful to us. It's all, it's all part of the plan, his good plan toward us. Father God, we come to you, and man, there's times when in the darkness of night, we don't see, we don't see how you're using these things for good in our lives. We're looking at those puzzle pieces. We can't see the big picture on the box like you do, and it's hard to trust you. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged from this, this story today about your faithfulness to Israel to remember if you've promised it to us that in Christ we're going to be given everything you've, give, you, you've offered. And Lord, for some of us today, we need to press into the kindness of God. 
And we need to come experience what it looks like to place our faith in Jesus. As we're given this warning here, if we run from you, we harden our hearts against you, you're going to give us what we want. You're going to give us ourselves. You're going to give us separation from you. Father, that's hell. So I pray that those today that don't know you would press in to the kindness of God and experience the salvation that Jesus offers. And that each of us would discover today the encouragement from placing our faith in these promises, even that we would remember that you are holy, you are sovereign, even when the darkness closes in, even when we don't understand your ways, that we would allow you to be God and trust the good, good promises you've given us. And every single one of these promises you've given us will come to fruition because we are in Christ. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.